My name is Zacharias. I am a priest out of the family of Abijah. I live in a village just outside of Jerusalem in the Judean hills. And maybe you've heard my name before. Certainly, you have heard of my wife's name, Elizabeth. And certainly, you have heard of our son, John. I come to you today because I need for you to understand the bigger picture of what you call Christmas. In my day and age, I understood very little of how you understand things. But there is not that much difference between my life and those lives that you live. Because just as I misunderstood what God was doing through my family, so I think many of you perhaps would take a deep breath and would have to admit that you too have become distracted, that you too have a hard time listening to the voice of God when God's voice is so clear and unmistakable. So I'm not here to add to the record that you have because the physician named Dr. Luke did very well in his gospel that's named after him, but it's all about Jesus. But I come simply to remind you and to maybe give you some clarity so that my story, the story of my family, can have a good and great impact upon yours. When you talk about being a priest in New Testament times, don't get this idea that all priests lived in the confines of the temple. Most of us lived all over the land of Israel. I had an occupation. I took care of animals. But my priestly line of Abijah was given the singular honor of two weeks out of every year of supplying the priests to take on the daily acts of sacrifice and worship in the big temple, the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And it just so happened that that particular year, the two weeks that, that our priestly line were called, I made the journey to Jerusalem. I'd been doing it for years. It seemed like forever. But this year, the unthinkable happened. The unexpected happened to me. Because in our line of the priests, there are so many duties and so many things to take care of in those two weeks that most of the time I was simply given the task of doing what I did best at home, and that is taking care of the animals. So all of the animals of sacrifice I would keep in the corrals next to the temple. And so when people, perhaps just like you if you lived in that day and time, were coming to offer sacrifice, I would be leading and bringing the sacrificial animal you had purchased to sacrifice to God. But this time, it was different. When the lots were chosen, and yes, we drew lots in my time, it fell to me to have the singular honor of lighting incense in the holy place. Now, that may not mean much to you, but the temple contained within it massive courts, Gentiles could be in this area but go no farther. Jews could be in this area and women could go no farther. But priests could go up to the building that contained the most important elements of sacrifice. 
But on this occasion, in this two weeks, I had a shift that was given to me. What I thought was by simply chance and by the casting of lots. But I know now that it was God's providence in my life. That I would have the honor of going into the holy place and lighting incense. That incense had to keep burning all during the day and during the night. It was lit two times. I was given one of those shifts. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about going in the Holy of Holies. I'm talking about the holy place. It was through those doors that you had the altar of incense and you had the table of the showbread, that bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It was there that you had the the altar and the basin of water where you would purify yourself. And it was there on that altar where I would light incense. But beyond that, there was another curtain that contained the Holy of Holies. No one went behind that curtain except one person, the high priest. And he only went behind that curtain one day out of the year to offer sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And so I found myself, Zacharias, the keeper of sacrificial animals, in the holy place, by myself, well, In the presence of God. I could barely hold my hand still. As I lit that incense. And that's when it happened. I noticed right before me. An angel. Have you ever seen an angel? Pray that you never do. In a situation like I was in. Because it scared me to death. But he calmed my fears and he called me by name and he said, Zacharias, I have come as a messenger from God. My name is Gabriel and I'm here to tell you something. Your prayers are going to be answered. My prayers? Oh, I knew what he was talking about. My wife Elizabeth and I had prayed one prayer, it seemed, all of our married life. And that was that we would have a child. I don't know about your day, but in my day, if a woman was barren and a woman had no children, she was scorned. You needed to carry on that family line. As unfair as it is, that's the way it was. And our prayer had been that we would have a child. And the angel Gabriel told me that we would not only have a child, but we would have a son. And he told me that I would name him not after me. That was what I had always planned to do. That's what the custom was. But no, we were to name our child John. John. Maybe you just pick names because they sound good. Maybe you look up in a book and find a name that you like. But in our culture, names carry great significance. And I knew the meaning of the name John. It meant the Lord is gracious. That's when I made my major mistake. I asked for a sign. The angel might as well have put his hands on his hips and said, are you kidding me? You need a sign when an angel right here, Gabriel, has come to you and told you that your prayer is going to be answered? All right, you'll get a sign. And the sign is, Mr. Zacharias, you'll not speak another word until your child is born. I learned something in that moment. Learned something that maybe you need to hear as well. That maybe we shouldn't doubt God. 
that maybe we should understand and know that in the everyday affairs of life, sometimes God causes unexpected things to happen and we don't believe it. That's where I found myself. I figured I would be spending my two weeks on priestly duty just taking care of those animals. As much as important as that is. But to be able to go into the holy place and to light incense just one time. And then to have the angel speak. And then for me to ask for a sign. Well, let me ask you this. When I went out of that holy place, I realized that people were upset because I had stayed in there a little too long. They felt that if a priest didn't go in and do his duty and light in the incense and come right back out because of the presence of God, that something bad might happen. And when I walked out, have you ever tried to tell a person that you've seen an angel? Can you imagine what kind of charade you had to do to convince them? But I couldn't speak. So they knew something was up. I immediately went home. And I told Elizabeth by writing it out on a clay tablet what the angel had told me. We rejoiced. And those nine months went by quicker than I could ever imagine. When John was born, everyone gathered around. Maybe you do that in your culture as well. And our cousins were already saying, he's such a cute little Zacharias. And Mary, shook, uh, Elizabeth, my wife, shook her head and said, no, his name is not Zacharias. Well, what do you mean his name is not Zacharias? It's your firstborn son. You've been waiting all of your lives for this. You were past child-rearing ages, both of you. And now you're saying that his name is not Zacharias? No, his name is John. Then they looked at me and said, what is his name? As though I would change it. And as I wrote out on a tablet... His name is John. All of a sudden, my voice came back. You know the story, don't you? Just a few months after Elizabeth found herself to be with child, another young woman found herself in a predicament. We knew her, a distant relative. Mary. She came and she stayed with us. And it was then that I began to understand all the words that Gabriel had told me that our son named John would be the forerunner of the one whom God would send. And Jesus was born in that stable. You can count all of those words in Luke's account to be true because they are. But what I really want to tell you this morning is I want to tell you what happened 30 years later. Of all the miracle of our son, John, being born, we also understood that the angel had told us that his fulfillment and destiny in life would be to point others to God's anointed one. And that we were to raise him in a strict environment he would not be raised like other children. And before we knew it, when he was barely old enough, really, we felt to take on any responsibility, he left us. Not because he was mad, not because he didn't love us, 
But he went to live among a group of people near the Dead Sea. You may know them as Essenes. E-S-S-E-N-E-S. They lived in a community called Qumran. Very religious is an understatement. Jews that were so committed to the ways of God that they almost felt, and we almost felt, even though me being a priest felt that they were looking down upon me. But I now understand it's just simply the fact that these were a group of people who were so committed to doing God's will that nothing else mattered. And our son was brought up in that environment. We saw him from time to time. He had on the strangest clothes I could ever imagine. Animal skins. We tried to take him out to dinner a time or two to bring him into our home, but he told us that his diet was, once again, one of the strangest diets I could ever imagine. Honey and bugs. But we could see it in his eyes. We could see the sense of purpose and the sense of destiny. And it was 30 years later when John, my son John, and Jesus, I understood and knew who he was, what he came to do. Very few others did. But as they grew up in similar circumstances in some ways, but yet distant from one another, there came that time when John fulfilled his destiny. He was a famous prophet. People were flocking to hear him. And he did most of his work near where that Jordan River spills into the Dead Sea where you can just look across and you can see in the hillside those settlements where he was raised. And it was there that John was baptizing people right and left. And he had a following, an unbelievable following. But it was there that he said those words when Jesus came with his friends and requested that John baptize him, that John cast his head down and said those words that I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal and yet you want me to immerse you and baptize you. It was part of my son fulfilling his destiny. And he baptized Jesus. Not that Jesus needed baptism, but Jesus did so many things as an example to people like me and people like you. My son found himself in jail, imprisoned. And this is what I've come to tell you. He still had friends that saw to his needs. Back in that day and time, if you were in prison, they didn't have a work-study program. They didn't feed meals to prisoners. If you ate, it's because people who cared about you would make it up to where you were imprisoned and pass along food if they were allowed to do that. And John's friends were somehow allowed to stay up with him and to stay in contact with him. And it was then that John asked a question. And he sent two of his friends that came to see him one day back to find Jesus. And I could tell my son, I knew that he was troubled. But he simply sent his friends with a question for Jesus. Simply put, are you the one? Are you the one that God has sent? 
or do we look for another? And Jesus heard that question and sent word back to John. And he said something like this. He said, tell John that the blind see and the deaf hear and the poor are being taken care of and those imprisoned are being set free. You tell him that those things are going on right now as we live and breathe. And his friends went back to John and gave him that word. But Jesus didn't stop there because Jesus then surrounded himself with anyone who would listen. And he said, when you think about the man named John, who do you think you're talking about? You think you're talking about someone who only cares about himself, who's only in it for himself? Do you think you're talking about someone who has soft skin? He said, none of the above. When you think of John the Baptist, when you think of John, my friend, when you think of John, the one who has prepared the way for me, you're talking about a man above all men. You're talking about a prophet. But I tell you this, there has been no one born of a woman, and that's everybody, I think, no one born of a woman who is greater than John. That's what Jesus said. My son. But then he said, but the one who is the least of these in God's kingdom is greater than John. What did he mean? Basically, in my mind, it's why did Jesus think so highly of our son? I know why. One of the reasons that Jesus loved my son and one of the reasons that my son came to do all the things that he did, it was made possible because my son was disciplined. I've already told you a little bit of his background. But as he was growing up, he had time for little else than what we could see in his eyes was a focus, a clear focus on doing what God wanted him to do. And yes, he was different from others. He didn't run in the same circles. He didn't go to the same schools. He didn't wear the same clothes. He didn't eat the same food. Because he was focused, laser focused, and disciplined. And that's why all those years living in Qumran toughened him up. Why all those years living down there by the Dead Sea. Why all those years really deserting his mother and father, we felt for a time. That's why he was able to do the things that he did. So I ask you, do you feel anything? Do you feel strong enough about anything like that that God would give you to do? Or do you pay God lip service? Do you, do you fit God into your schedule when you have time? I mean, I appreciate you all showing up here today, but is this the extent of what your world calls commitment? Jesus loved my son because he was disciplined. But there's another reason. Jesus loved my son because my son was a bold speaker. That's what prophet really is talking about, prophecy. I know what you people think. You think prophecy is all about the future. You're wrong. If you go back and look it up in God's Word, you'll find that prophecy is a little bit about the future. Okay, I grant that. But most of the time, prophecy is not foretelling. It's forth-telling. It's telling the truth. 
I told you my son was in jail when he sent that question to Jesus. And the reason he was in jail is because he opened his mouth and spoke the truth. He called out a king. He called out a ruler, a young man who should have known better, who was living an immoral life and had great authority and had great influence. And he called him out on it. And because of it, he was imprisoned. And it would eventually cost him his life. But, you know, we noticed a pattern in our son all those years when he was with us before he left and even when we saw him from time to time. And it was simply this, that he spoke the truth. He wasn't sarcastic about it. He wasn't demeaning people when he spoke the truth. He simply spoke the truth of God. And Jesus loved him for it. Jesus loved my son, the son that I should have rightly named after my own family, Zacharias. But he loved my son, John, because above all things, as strong a speaker as he was, as disciplined as he was, my son was humble. Maybe hard to see that as you read about him. Maybe hard to really see that side of him when you think about what he was called to do and to be a forerunner of the Messiah is no small task. But think of it in this way. How many times could my son have grown jealous of the popularity of Jesus? How many times could my son have seen all of the crowds that were following him and he meant well? Why couldn't he have just said, I'll share this Messiahship with you, Jesus? But he didn't do that. Time and time again, he would look at people and he would say, you've been following me and that's good. But do you see that man right there? Go and follow him. Now, how many of us would have that kind of vision and humility when everything screaming in our ego would say, this is mine. I have power here. I'm the forerunner, which means I should share in some of the glory. But my son would have none of that. And I'll tell you this. You look through your Bible, and you're going to find of all the things that you cannot do in God's world, of all the things that you cannot do on your own strength, of all the things that are beyond you and beyond me, you'll find one thing that God says over and over again we can do, and he commands us to do it. And you know what it is? Humble yourself. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself and God will exalt you at the proper time. If there was any lesson I learned from my son, it was that. But Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, loved my son because my son would never let if stand in his way. If. How do you say it in your language? If. In my language, it means the same thing. It's such a small little word. Two letters in your alphabet. It's only three letters in the tongue that I speak. But it's the most damaging word that you could ever speak. Because what if my son had said, 
If only I had been given a task that would have been more popular. If only, pray he would never have said this, if only I'd been born in another family. We couldn't have loved our son any more than we did. We couldn't have provided for him any more than we did. But like I say, he was not just our child. He belonged to God. And God so choose to use an old priest named Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth, to bring forth a child whose sole reason for living would be to point in the direction of God's salvation. But if John had said if along the way, what would have happened? Where would we be today? You see, in a sense, the way I look at my son, John, was he spent his life planting trees that he knew he would never climb. He spent his life doing things for people he would never meet. He spent his life and he dedicated his life to making sure that the blessing of salvation and the grace of God could be given to all people. People he would never know. People he would be long gone in heaven before he would ever see the actual fruit of it. I mean, of all the things he was able to see and able to do, of all the things we would have wanted him to do and wanted him to have become in our, in our way of thinking, in how you would raise a family, and how we would have grandchildren, and so on and so on. Of all those things, what did John really end up seeing? He ended up seeing the last of his days, much too young to be martyred behind a prison cell, in a prison cell. Wondering if Jesus was the one. And I guess that's where I park it today. That's where I leave it with you today. Is that when I was burning that incense and Gabriel spoke to me and I was in such shock and fear that I doubted. That yes, I was given that sign. And those nine months of silence... It's exactly what I needed. It gave me the opportunity to think. It gave me the opportunity to realize I didn't have to always be speaking. I didn't always have to have the last word. And perhaps in some way, shape, or form, when my son expressed not necessarily doubt like I did, but when he simply wanted confirmation that what his entire life had been about was correct and it was right and it was true and it was the way it was supposed to be that God reached out to him through the words of Jesus and settled his heart are you willing to plant trees that you know you won't climb are you willing to see beyond yourself and look beyond what is right there in front of you, the things you can count on, the things that you can do on your own? Are you even willing to face that faith may be the biggest factor that you need in your life? Big old church here. I couldn't imagine 
being a part of a church like this. Though you never will understand the majesty of the temple till you're there. But are you people willing to plant trees that you know you will never climb? Are you willing to see and to discipline your life and to count the cost and to pay the price, whatever God may lead you to do? Are you sitting around waiting for some sign and waiting for it all to come together, waiting for it all to be answered? From one old priest to all of you, never doubt what God can do. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here, to be in your presence, to call upon your name, to speak your truth. And Father, we're grateful for the insight we find in, on the pages of Scripture. And we pray that the events that we know is all about the coming of Christ that we would, see, we would see ourselves on those pages, that we would understand that you have a task for us to do. We would never shy away from it, but that we would count, we would count it all a privilege to serve you, to follow you. These are the things we pray, and we pray them in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. We have read into passages this morning. We have told, I think, what I would think to be the truth. And so because of God speaking to us through our singing, through our praying, through our focusing on Australia, and for thinking about the perspective of a particular view of Christmas, it leads us to make decisions. So we offer that invitation for all of us in this room. As we sing this hymn in just a moment, we're going to ask you to step out and come forward because some need to make decisions that are in front of the congregation and therefore in front of the world. If you're here today and you have never said yes to Jesus, then we give you that opportunity to do so this morning, to step across that line of faith, to put your trust in Him. Maybe you're here today and you know the Lord just hadn't told anyone. The Bible says there are no secret disciples so we ask you to stand before this congregation and profess your faith in Christ. Maybe you need to follow him in believer's baptism. Once again, that was the, really the first thing that we read about when John is an adult is when Jesus came and approached him and asked to be baptized and what that meant. If you need to talk through that and need to understand what it means for you, why you would want to do that, let's talk about it. Come forward. Maybe joining our church is what God's will is for you today. How do you join our church? You come forward. There are folks here in our congregation who believe in prayer. Ray and Liz, Lon will be up in the balcony. These folks are here waiting simply to offer a prayer if that's the need of your life today. In other words, whatever it is that God is leading you to do, whatever it is that reminds us why Jesus loved his friend John, Maybe those things need to be practiced in your life. It's never too late. That's why we say, make your choice now. We stand together, we sing, as we wait, as God leads, step out.